Our first word of Christ from the cross comes to us from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and all the, and the criminals also, one on his right and one is on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. It's been said that forgiveness is the most praised and the most neglected of Christian virtues. Uh, forgiveness is a wonderful idea, they say, until you have something to forgive. It sounds marvelous until you have some hurt, some offense to forgive. And the greater the suffering, uh, the more difficult it is to forgive. And yet, what is the offense that we first hear in this first word? The world is killing its maker. No ordinary death would do for the majestic Lord of glory, only a death most painful and most shameful. Crucifixion, you probably know, was designed to be not only gruesome in its pain, but also humiliating, disgraceful, shaming. And yet in all of this, Jesus' first word as he's lifted up on the cross is, Father, forgive them. This is what Christ says from the cross. It's crucial, crucial, you might say, that the first words that come from the lips of our Lord Jesus are about forgiveness, because forgiveness is the foundation of the cross. It's not the last word, it's the first word. Forgiveness is what the cross is all about, why Jesus went willingly to his crucifixion. Jesus says this word of forgiveness while the wounds are still open, you might say. Many of us have often said maybe that it takes us a while. I can forgive, but it, it needs to take a while. You can't expect immediate forgiveness from this hurt upon me. And yet Jesus does this immediately. He announces forgiveness throughout his ministry, but here we see him praying for forgiveness. He actually prays to his father. It's a picture of his role as mediator. That's what it means that he's lifted up on the cross between heaven and earth. And Jesus now makes intercession from the cross. He's even now, actually, our Lord Jesus right now, interceding for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. And who is this intercession for, we might ask? Father, forgive them. We don't really know. Who is the them it's purposeful. It's whoever fills in that blank. Who receives this forgiveness? Most of all, it's for those who oppose him. Those who are crucifying him. That's who's in front of him. His enemies. In fact, Jesus is living out his own teaching. He had said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We shouldn't stumble over, by the way, they knew not what they're doing as if these words excuse somehow what's happening. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say forgive them for it. The fact that he says forgive them assumes that there's guilt there. Forgiveness is needed. But those who nailed Jesus to the cross didn't know the extent to what they were doing. They didn't understand the height of their guilt and what, who it was who was on the cross and what this plan was for. But in fact, the very cause of this offense is actually the instrument of forgiveness. Jesus was on the cross, paying the penalty for those who put him on the cross. And beloved, who was it who ultimately put Jesus on the cross? 
not just the Jewish leaders, not just the Roman soldiers. It was us. The scriptures scriptures say, because of sin, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's all of us. This word ultimately is for us, whether we know it, you might say, or not. Because the cross, by the cross, God forgives even those who know what they do when they sin. This is our forgiving Savior who speaks this first word from the cross. Amen. The second word is also from Luke 23, verses 39 to 43, which say, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There were two men who were crucified with Jesus. Two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And both of these men asked for something from Jesus. Both of them asked for salvation from Jesus, but only one of them received that salvation. The first one asked for salvation by joining his voice with the mocking voices of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and Pontius Pilate and the soldiers and the passers-by by saying, Oh, you say you're the Christ, don't you? Well, if you're the Christ, then, then save yourself and, and save us as well. That was the tenor in which this first criminal asked for salvation. And I'm quite certain that he didn't receive what he asked for. Because he asked in jest, he asked in mocking, he asked in sarcasm and irony. But the other criminal, he was watching this scene and he reflected And it doesn't look like he was a man who had a great deal of fear of God during his life. But as he was inching toward his death, he began to fear God. And he he rebuked his fellow criminal and he said, Do you not fear God? And he recognized something about himself. And he recognized some things about Jesus as well. What he recognized about himself was that he was guilty. He said to his his fellow on the other cross, he said, you and I are here because we deserve to be here. We deserve capital punishment. Our deeds have been so vile. But this man has done nothing wrong. He recognized his guilt. He recognized Jesus' perfection. And he also recognized that Jesus is a king. He knew his name. And he knew he was a king. And so he said simply, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asked for salvation as well. And he received it. We know he received it because Jesus responded to him and said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, why did this man receive salvation? 
because of the great works he had done in his life? No, he hadn't done any, as far as we can tell. Because he had been baptized? No, this is perhaps the only example we have in Scripture of someone coming to faith and not following by baptism. Why? Because he recognized his need, and he recognized Jesus' ability to answer that need. But notice in Jesus' response what he did. What Jesus did is he undid the curse of Genesis 3. If you go back to the first human couple and their sin, what happened to them? They were separated from God and they were exiled from paradise. And there was a guard placed at the door back to the tree of life so that they couldn't go back into paradise. And humanity ever since then has wanted to get back to paradise. But there was a a bar to the door. What did Jesus do? He said to him, today I tell you, you will be with me, no more separation, and in paradise. The gates are flung open once again. Back to presence with God, back to communion with God, and back to that estate that he made us in, paradise. How can we receive it? By recognizing that we need it and asking Jesus, the only one, who can grant it to us. Third word from the cross comes to us from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 26 to 27. It says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Have you ever wondered at the significance of Jesus' words, specifically to Mary? At the very least, Jesus was being a righteous son, loving his mother, honoring her according to the law, as we find in Exodus. Honor your father and your mother. At the very least, he was doing that. And certainly, he was embodying Yahweh's own compassion for the widow, as Mary was a vivid example of this. But was there something more to his words. Oddly enough, we expect him to refer to her as mother, but he calls her woman. And if you remember in John chapter 2, when she comes to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. What do I have to do with this situation? And she would have remembered that moment when he said tenderly, woman, it's not my hour yet. And both now and then, Mary had to reckon with the fact that though Jesus was not less than her son, he was certainly more than her son. And this was probably captured in him calling her woman in this moment. There was a somewhat of a divine distance between him and her. He was her creator, not only the son of her womb. And another memory that would come to her about this divine distance between her and Jesus would be that time when they came down from Capernaum, Mary and Jesus' own biological brothers, and they came seeking him, and they called out after him as he was teaching among his disciples. And they wanted to bring him back home and, and to essentially keep him away from his preaching ministry. And so the crowd told Jesus, they said, look, your mother and your brothers are outside, they're, they're seeking you. And Jesus said some words that would have pained Mary very personally, but would have taught her very much. And that he said this, Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked around at his disciples and he said, These, these, the ones who hear the will of God and do it, these are my mother and my brother. 
And so Mary was learning that Jesus was calling her into relationships that were based on loyalty to him and to him alone. And as we just saw, Jesus had other brothers, biological brothers, sons of Mary. But John tells us earlier in his gospel, in chapter 7, that they had refused to believe in him. And because they refused to believe in him, he refused to entrust his mother Mary to them in this hour. So when he says, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother, he was creating, he was being the creator, he was sovereignly creating a new family, a family born, as John says in chapter one, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And so tonight, as you look around at your fellow believers, Jesus says to you, child, behold your mother and your father, behold your brother and your sister. And my prayer is that all who hear would stand where Mary so faithfully stood and would receive Christ's creative word, calling them into a family devoted to him and to him alone. Amen. Our fourth word is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Good Friday service that we're celebrating here has traditionally been called a tenebrae service, a service of shadows. We meet in darkness. Larry has actually turned off the lights in some ways to remind us of this. And the reason we remember this is because the light of the world went out. In him was life, John said, and that life was the light of men, the true light that gives light to the whole world. So when Jesus yields up his life, the lights go out. The light of the world is shut off. We're reading in this crucifixion account that it was dark in the middle of the daytime. From noon until 3 p.m., three hours in the middle of the day. The Old Testament prophets, if you remember, spoke about a coming day of darkness. Often a coming day of judgment. Hear for a moment these words, the words from the prophet Isaiah first. The day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, a day of wrath and of fierce anger. The land will be desolate. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give his light. And I will punish the world for its evil. Hear the words of Jeremiah, the prophet. I will come, bring destruction on the land. And at midday, I will bring the destroyer. And the sun will be eclipsed while it is still yet midday. And the prophet Amos. In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the whole earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like a lament for an only son. Jesus himself, when he was arrested in the garden, had said to his captives, his captors, this is your hour, the hour when darkness reigns. These three hours of darkness, beloved, were a world apocalyptic event. This is Judgment Day. A famous theologian of the 20th century was once asked by a number of people, when do you think Judgment Day is? Is it going to be 1980, 2000, 
When's it going to be? Tell us. And he said, Judgment Day was in 30 AD. That's when it was. It's here in the darkness that Jesus calls out using the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a call for information. It's to show us what's going on in the darkness. Jesus is bearing the sin of the world. Judgment day is here and Jesus is bearing it in himself. He's becoming a curse for us. Jesus experiencing the judgment that we hear the whole world deserves. I will punish the whole world for its evil. God had said like a lament for an only son that we deserve. He was delivered over to judgment so that we might be delivered from our judgment. But Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted there doesn't end in abandonment. Jesus is still acting in trust. It ends this psalm, if you remember, by God saying that he has heard the cry of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The apostle Peter preaching to his countrymen who were there at the crucifixion would actually use that exact same word, forsake, abandon. To say, God did not abandon him to the grave. And for this, the Lord can fulfill his promise. Never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you. The fourth word comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. After entrusting Mary to the Apostle John in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus knew that all was now finished, that all was now completed. And then he said another word. And here the Apostle John in writing this used a word for fulfilled that is used this way only once right here in the New Testament. And it's often translated completed. And it's very close to the word that appears here as finished. And so it says something like this. Now, knowing that all had been completed, Jesus said, in order to complete the scripture. So in case we don't miss it, or in case we miss it, John is emphasizing the completeness of what is going on here. But we might ask, what scripture exactly did he complete by saying, I thirst? Well, it was probably Psalm 69. In verse 3, the psalmist writes, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. And then in verse 21, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. He said it to fulfill the scripture. Now, when we think about this word, on the one hand, this word is the most obvious word, isn't it? Why, after these hours on the cross, did he need to tell us that he's thirsty other than to fulfill that that psalm? Didn't we already know that he was thirsty? Isn't that something we could already figure out? Because there he is on the cross. Who would not be thirsty in a situation like that? But that's just the point. 
He's thirsty precisely because he is a human being being crucified in that moment. That's why he's thirsty. He would not be thirsty if he were not a human just like us. And so this human, the Son of God, become a human being just like us, told us something that a normal human being would say in that sort of situation. I'm thirsty. And here we see the emphasis on the fact that Jesus' humanity was just like ours, with one exception. He never sinned, as that criminal on the cross recognized. In Hebrews it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he takes on, but he takes on the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, including thirst, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so on the one hand, it's a very obvious word, but it's only obvious if he is a man, just like we are men and women. But on the other hand, this word is very surprising. You recall when Jesus had a conversation with a thirsty woman back in John chapter 4? And he said, woman, if you knew who I am, you would ask for me and I would give you living water. And that living water would well up in you unto eternal life. And Jesus was pointing to himself as the source of living water. And so this is very surprising that the source of living water would be thirsty. Why was the source of living water thirsty? Well, Once again, he's thirsty because he was taking our place. And humans are subject to thirst. We're subject to physical thirst and we're subject to to thirst for that which is real and true and right and lasting. And so here Jesus was indicating that, that he was taking our place. He was thirsting so that we might never thirst again. Even as he said to that that woman at the well, If you drink the water that I give you, you will never be thirsty again. And we come to the very last book of the Bible, the last chapter, and we hear some invitations. And among those invitations is this one. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is to say, without price to the thirsty one, because Jesus, the water of life, the giver of living water, is that price to satisfy our thirst. The sixth word comes to us from John's Gospel, and it's just following the one that Larry shared in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. I'm sure you've heard a few times, maybe in church or in other settings or Bible group settings, that this Greek word here has actually been found on bills of payment, stamped on ancient bills of payment, and that it has some sense of that a debt is paid in full. And so that what we should see here is that a debt has been paid in full, that debt being our sin, and that our sins have been removed, and that his justice has been fully satisfied. And this is 100% true. But if it's left by itself here, it will leave the story woefully incomplete. And so what if I told you that this word, it is finished, should evoke in our minds a triumphant, cosmic warrior king who has decisively wrestled back a stolen creation. And you, you'd say, not, not in this short verse, Derek. You're not, you're not doing your work hard enough. I don't see any of that here. And I give that to you, but, but follow with me. I got this from Jesus Christ. I got it in the same Gospel of John in chapter 12, starting in verse 27, where Jesus is looking ahead to the hour of the cross, the hour of his death, the work that the Father has given him. And he says this, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so what do, what do we learn from this if we take it in light of our text? We learn that the perp- when the purposes of the cross are finished, the ruler of this world, he's going to be thrown out like a bad pile of garbage. And I love that. He's getting tossed out. And in the Greek, the idea is literally get kind of chucked and thrown out. So it is finished was a battle cry. It was a battle cry. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon commenting on our, our text here today. Our Redeemer's glorious cry of it is finished was the death knell of all the adversaries of his people. Behold the hero of Golgotha using his cross as an anvil and his woes as a hammer dashing to shivers bundle after bundle of our sins. What glorious blows the mighty breaker gives with a hammer far more ponderous than the fabled weapon of Thor. Behold, he draws from its sheath of hellish workmanship the dread sword of satanic power. He snaps it across his knee as a man breaks the dry wood in a bundle of sticks and casts it into the fire. Secondly, we learn that when the purposes of that hour are finished or accomplished or completed, that the God of this world will be thrown out and then Jesus will then draw all people to himself. And this is a very old hope in the Israel Israelite prophets. And we read of this hope of, of God drawing all people and bringing them streaming to Zion in hope and in glory, all the nations. We find this in Isaiah chapter 25. And in it we find the God of Israel who here also is a conquering war king who defeats death and buys back the entire world. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 25 starting in verse 1 oh lord you are my god 
I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made this city a heap and the fortified city a ruin. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So in that hour and on that mountain, the world's ruler was thrown out. Along with death, the rightful king now reigns. His divine work is sealed in his very own blood. And now all the nations, all people, you and me, all nations, are coming back home. It is finished. Amen. The seventh and the last word comes to us from Luke chapter 23. Verses 44 through 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light had failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this last, he breathed his last. This is the final word from the cross, and it's worth noticing how Jesus addresses this word in sequence with what we've already heard. The very first word we began with tonight, Jesus starts with Father. Father, forgive them. The very center word, the fourth word, Jesus speaks about my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? But now we're told the darkness is lifting here in the ninth hour. Jesus has gone through hell on earth, a seeming eternity packed into a three-hour span. But here we've returned again to that intimate language that Jesus calls his God, my Father, Father. The final word isn't about desertion or abandonment or forsakenness. It's one about commitment and trust. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's not even a prayer. He's not requesting anything. He's making a declaration for us to hear. It's a statement of faith. Traditionally, this word in church history has been called the word of reunion. See, Jesus never stopped trusting his father, but now that veil that perhaps was between them has been lifted. That temporary experience of forsakenness between the father and the son, not in their love, but in the judgment of sin and the flesh of Christ has been lifted. Reunion. It's appropriate then that as there's reunion, there's actually a different rupture. As Jesus speaks about his father, the curtain veil of the temple is permanently torn in two. See, the son is reunited to his father. We are reunited in Christ. And it's God himself who removes the barrier. Jesus loses access to God, his father, for a moment, but he gives us access forever. And again, it's a psalm that's on our Savior's mind and lips. This quotation here is from Psalm 31, a psalm of trust in difficult times. It's also a psalm about deliverance from difficulty. The very next words that Jesus doesn't quote is, For you have redeemed me. Into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me. See, Jesus is brought back from the brink 
Not because of his own sin, but from identifying with our sin. And it's we who are redeemed then in Christ. Because he committed himself to his Father through the Spirit, we are redeemed. Finally, we're told that Jesus breathes out his last. He gives up his spirit. If you know the King James, he gives up the ghost. But even in these short words, beloved, there's actually a glimmer of the event still yet to come that we celebrate. See, giving up his spirit is clearly a a way of talking about breathing last. It's speaking about his humanity. But 50 days from now, Jesus is going to give his spirit in a greater way. We have a hint of it here. And how do we know that? The very next thing that happens after this word is a Gentile pagan standing at the foot of the cross says, surely this man was righteous. See, Jesus gives up his spirit and the first to receive it is a Gentile who says, this man is the son of God points to the fact that Jesus gives us his spirit and he gives us the very forgiveness he had prayed for. Jesus breathes out his spirit, even as God had from the very beginning breathed the breath of life into Adam and made him a living soul, giving the spirit. Jesus commits himself into the hand of God. It's to the right hand of God that Jesus is raised. See, God has kept his son in his hand. And that's good news for us. No one can snatch you from my Father's hand. Christ has committed himself to his Father so that we might be committed then to him. Amen.